The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Linfield University or Linfield University departments. Hi everyone, it's Mara and Sincere and welcome back to another episode of Politox. Today we are joined by Dr. Barclitz from Linfield's Political Science Department. Would you like to introduce yourself today? Hi, uh, I, I'm Robin. Um, Dr. Barclays is also my, my father and my grandmother. Um, I teach uh, politics here at Linfield, as you said, primarily political theory and law. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you. Um, we are talking with Dr. Barclays um, about a PPM politics event about inequality. And that is going to be the topic of this podcast today. So I just kind of want to dive right into some things uh, and start a discussion. Um, but during the event, you uh, discussed meritocracy and this kind of idea in American society that if you work hard enough, you will you will make it here. The whole American dream and everything. Um, but that doesn't really ring true for a lot of communities, um, a lot of non-white people in the United States. And so I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on that meritocracy and stuff um, and all, how it impacts inequality. But also uh, I feel like one of the things that goes along with meritocracy in our society and the kind of value we have in that is this value of individualism and what you can maybe say about how that also impacts um, levels of inequality or how we view inequality in our society. Okay, wonderful question. Thank you. Um, so the idea of meritocracy, I think, roughly is that people, where they end up economically, is determined by two things. It's determined by your effort on the one hand and your sort of native ability on the other. And if you have a purely meritocratic society, it would be a society in which individuals their chances in society were determined exclusively by those two things, right? By their effort and their ability. My sense is that we've been able to maintain the myth of meritocracy so long in the United States because it's, it is the case that for a small subsection of people, the economy does kind of work meritocratically. It's just the small subsection of the population that it works for are people who look like me, right? They're white guys. And for nearly every other group, they face obstacles that are outside of problems in terms of you know, inherent ability or their effort. Um, so I think one of the reasons for its persistence is that our image of society is itself written by, I don't want to say the victors because that's not the right word, but you know, the people who dominate society. That is, again, people who look like me, white guys. Um, in terms of the individuals I'm inherent in meritocracy, I think that there's something I, I was just reading um, a book, spacing on the, on the woman's last name, A White Fragility. I don't know if, uh, if, you, if you all read that. D'Angelo, right? Yes, D'Angelo, thank you. That, I was lecturing on it this morning, I should remember. Um, you know, she's talking about how the class of people who, for whom the economy does work meritocratically have their self-worth tied up in this meritocratic myth because, you know, if we do well, we say, oh, I did that, that was mine. 
And there's something really difficult about realizing, especially if you've you know, done well or you've been given things that allowed you to do well, there's something really terrifying about realizing like, oh, this was, this was luck, right? And had I been born someone else, had I been born to different circumstances, I would probably be somewhere very different. And so there's kind of, psychologically, I think it's difficult for people who you know, have done well and for whom the sort of would-be meritocratic system has worked. Um, there's something difficult to admit. And inside of that is also a difficulty admitting the importance of our identities, right? The importance of the fact that I'm, you know, people see me, they see a man, they see a white man. Um, because meritocracy is framed in terms of individuals, it allows me to sort of universalize. We're like, oh, this is the case for all people. And it allows me to deny the impact of my identity. And so I think individualism comes with meritocracy and is, I think, in a sense, part of a defense mechanism, almost, um, you know, for those of us who the economy has given a lot of things or to whom the economy has given a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, thank you for that answer. A couple of things that really, that you said that really resonated with me was um, this idea that um, it is a hard thing to to accept if you if you think like maybe if I wasn't born um, a white person I would not be in the position I am but that's something that I feel like I'm mean, speaking in my own experience as a person who identifies as Asian American and a person of color I think about that all the time and it's this difference between how people BIPOC individuals versus um, non like versus non-BIPOC individuals think about uh, how much time they dedicate to thinking about their own racial identity. Because I remember growing up and, you know, still even now I think about, you know, what, if, if I was, if I was white, you know, like how would my situation change and how would I be better? And even being younger and growing up in a white community um, and kind of being an outsider and wishing I was white, you know, wanting to wanting to be that in a sense, because I saw that I was like, maybe if I was white, my life would be better in a sense like that, especially in American society. That was something that was uh, very, like a big part of my, my growing up, this kind of, uh, I can't, I'm struggling to find the word, um, but like that was my goal, whiteness was my goal. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, I guess part of my thinking, especially in the last couple of years is that, you know, being that aware of one's identity, it's not always a fun thing, right? And it's, I think there's a sense in which we kind of have pushed it on BIPOC communities. Um, and I think there's a sense in which kind of this recognition of how much my whiteness has impacted my chances in life, I think that recognition allows me and also suggests that I have a moral obligation to sort of recognize my identity and bear um, bear the weight of it in the way that everybody else has already been bearing the weight of their identities, right? And, you know, that's not to say that, you know, I necessarily should feel like guilty about it, but I think it is that I need to own the various positions that my identity has allowed me to have with, frankly, less work than I probably should have had to put in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that answer. Yeah, what I liked about just listening to the both of you is that there's a certain vulnerability that comes with 
um, at least I'm learning in the identity um, journey that I'm taking is that there's a sense of vulnerability in um, being able to look at yourself in the eye and saying, this is what I bring to the table and this is how I understand that it affects other people. And I think that especially today um, with the events that we've seen in the past week and the rise in Asian American hate that has really like just suffocated um, our communities in our country, we, it's important that we continue these conversations with that vulnerability. Um, so my question sort of leads into the communal aspect of this and how the influences of these intersections in affect BIPOC communities. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak more about the themes that Mara brought up and how they intersect with um, inf influences such as the model minority myth. Sure, great, great question. I mean, let me, let me first say something about vulnerability um, because you, you, know, you bring it up and I think it's, it's a really important point, I think both morally and also pedagogically. Um, so, you know, when I, when I teach, I try to be really honest about where I'm coming from and those, those blind spots I might have, right? And I think in some sense, it's my moral obligation much more so than it would be the moral obligation of someone who's been less privileged, right? And so, you know, I, I really appreciate you picking that out as an important aspect. In terms of, um, in terms of the impact or the significance of, you know, community and the, the model minority myth, I think that one of the insidious things that individualism does, you know, just sort of this individualistic myth that where you end up in the economy is, is based solely on individual factors about you, is that it makes it seem as though any failing or any inequality is the individual's fault, right? And, you know, we hear this quite explicitly sometimes with explanations of inequality that like, oh, it's, you know, I, I think I said in the, in the talk the other night, you know, poor people end up poor because they don't work hard or people of color are killed by the police more often than white people because they commit more crimes. And I think the model minority myth is a way of maintaining that individualism, right? Where you say, look at them, you know, they did okay, and they look like you, and because they were able to do okay, and they look like you as a person of color or, or whatever, you should have been able to do this too, and not doing okay in the economy or, or being sort of unequal in various ways, this is your fault because someone who looks like you was able to do it. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that it just shows how much not, I think, I don't know if shame is fully the word that I want to get into, but there is, there's a culture of shame that is passed throughout the community. And it's so, um, when you're, when you're a student and you're learning about these things, sometimes it's hard to sit there and read it and then go and identify it in your own life. I found myself doing that semester after semester. Um, and maybe that's why when I took your class, I thought to myself, okay, could I make myself happier in other ways? <laughs> um, and so I think like there is that there is that importance in the honesty and the transparency that you share with your those around you while you're teaching or while you're just talking, um, because perspective changes everything. Um, and the more that you're able to sit down with another person and just be real about that and bring everything you have with you to the table, um, the farther you go. 
So yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. Thank you. Uh, can, can I say something about, about shame? Um, because I, I find it a really interesting, you know, phenomenon. I've been, I've, I'm not totally sure where I, where I stand. So in the, in the spirit of vulnerability, I'm going <laughs> to say this and I'm not certain yeah. about it. Um, you know, I think one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how we tell the story of America and how people who, you know, who look like me are given all of these moments to feel pride. And I've been thinking, I wonder if it might be good for us to tell, tell a story of America where I also feel shame, you know, or I also see people like me doing extraordinarily terrible things. And, you know, I realize that may not be a personal responsibility, you know, at all, but it may be, you know, a sort of the responsibility of, hey, I've been given this position of, you know, relative power and relative privilege, given, maybe shame is not the right word, but given the horror, you know, I see in that history, I should be, I should be driven to change something. And, you know, I guess my hope is that Ultimately, shame is probably not good for anybody. Right? Um, but I guess my hope is that at some point we can create a world where, at the very least, those who should feel uncomfortable about what's been done in their name feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that. Um sitting with it, sitting with the uncomfortability is what frees you. Because once you get through it, the perspective you had when you were afraid is no longer there. Like you've been through it, you've done the work. And so, I mean, we're sitting in a lot of different communities and we're having these same conversations around like diversity and inclusion. And what that means to a white student may not be what it means to any of the students of color on this campus. And those are th things that once I think once those tiny communities within even Linfield get comfortable talking about those, that's when the structural change happens. But until there's that acknowledgement and that, that bravery to sit there and just be, be present for it, then we, we really won't see anything. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. I just want to say, I do feel like um, there's, there's a difference between shame and honesty. And I feel like when it, when it comes to vulnerability and it, it and it comes to like all of this reminds like what what uh, you were saying, Dr. Barclays, and what Sincere was saying, this kind of idea that the truth will free you, um, in a sense like being honest will free you, confronting your own reality, um, and like you know some of the things being honest about the good and the bad. It just both things remind me so much of what I feel like James Baldwin always talked about, and you know he has this amazing quote which is like. I think I've said it on the podcast before, but this quote about how he's like, you know, people would be, tell him that like he was an American or, or something like that, because he would criticize how the United States society treated black people. And he responded by saying, I love America. You know, he's like, I am American and I love America, but that's why I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. And it's this idea that um, of course, no country's, no community's history is going to be so happy and so rosy 
um, all the time. Like there are things that we have done um, as a, I don't know, as, as humans, as civilizations um, that are, that are regrettable actions is what I will say that are regrettable actions. Um, but the way to do that is like, like you guys were saying, sitting with the uncomfort, uncomfort, um, sitting with the, you know, sometimes shame, but realizing that it's honesty. And it's like, it's not that you are trying to make yourself feel bad. You're just trying to, to learn and let those things exist with the weight that they should exist because they did happen, you know? And, and one of the things that I think is one of the biggest disservices to our society is the erasure that happens within our education of BIPOC experiences, not just the, the joy and everything, but um, a lot of the trauma that's left out that would paint such a different picture, give us such a different perception of our own country that we just don't have access to in a lot of like specifically K through 12 education. Yeah, um, and two things. One, I think I, I absolutely love the distinction between honesty and shame. And I think you're right. I think what I was looking for is something more like uncomfortable honesty, but honesty, you know, I think I, I, I don't think shame is a good thing to feel. Um, but another thing you said, you know, about, about James Baldwin, um, I was thinking about uh, Frederick Douglass's essay, um, you know, what to the slave is the, fourth, is the 4th of July. And, you know, there's one reading of that essay, which is the Declaration of Independence and that, you know, apologies for the male pronoun, all, all men are created equal. I really wish it would have been all people are created equal. But that sentiment is extraordinary. But you can love that sentiment and also say, I would just like us to live up to that promise. Right? And that is a way of loving America and saying, we need to live up to our foundational commitments, which we have not been living up to. Another thing that, that, that struck me um, you know, when you were talking was, I was thinking about this distinction that, that I get from, from Hannah Arendt between guilt on the one hand and responsibility on the other. And so if you think about how guilt works, you know, guilt is backward looking. You know, you're guilty for something that you have done. And guilt also singles out. Right? I alone am responsible for doing this bad thing. On the other hand, there's one way of reading responsibility, which is I take responsibility for improving the world. So instead of being backwards directed, it's future directed. And also when you take responsibility for the common world, you're bringing things together, right? You're not singling out. So they're kind of in some ways antonyms. And I wonder if there's a sense in which an acknowledgement of history can actually create a kind of future-directed responsibility. Yeah, definitely. That's a, such a great question. I also wonder about that. Um, but I just love what you just said, though, this idea that guilt is looking back and, and you know, regretting things. But um, that responsibility is like, I have the responsibility to make this improvement. It's so forward-looking. And I am very much a futurist, so I'm always kind of thinking, you know, how can I plan um, my next move, like, even five years in the future, how can I, like, plan my life, which is very unrealistic. But um, I think it's hard because you, when, when you 
or doing that work at first, like say if you've never been exposed to some of the things that we've done in history um, that the United States government has committed against its own people, but people around the world, when you start doing that work, you can get uh, emotionally exhausted and burnt out. And you can, you have all those feelings of that guilt and the regret of, um, you know, being maybe a member of the country that committed the atrocities or just like not, you, you may feel guilty because you just didn't know any of anything about this. Um, and I feel like it can be paralyzing and it can kind of sh sometimes sh shut you down. I know in the past I felt, I felt like that, like where I learned a lot about something I felt like I should have known about. And I felt I was kind of beating myself up for it, but it's like, you can sit, it's good to sit with that and recognize you know, maybe the structures, the barriers to you never learning that stuff. Um, but it's also like, okay, well, where do we go from here? And that kind of improvement, I think it's a great way of changing the mindset to keep moving forward instead of getting stuck at that one step. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point. I um, actually wrote my dissertation on the memory of injustice. And, you know, one of the points that, you know, I came to again and again is that there's a way of remembering that's future directed, you know, that you say, we're going to remember a difficult history in part as an acknowledgement of that history and the people in it, in part as an acknowledgement of the people who are still very much touched by that history, but also in part as a promise to do differently in the future, right? Like when you remember something and you say, that was awful, <laughs> you know, part of what you're saying is a judgment about the past, but also part of what you're saying is, I'm willing to build a future that looks different than that, right? And so I think there's, there's a way of remembering that is sort of between past and future and a way of sort of moving into the future from the past. Yes, I totally agree. So I actually have a different question than what I wrote on the sheet, Sincere, but um, I just wanted to talk about, so there's, um, we've been talking a lot, obviously, I feel like about racial inequality in the United States, um, but also economic inequality during the pizza and politics event that was touched on. And I read this quote by a author, Julietta, uh, Julietta Singh, and she, she wrote in one of her books that being, it was basically this idea that for people who are non-white, our bodies are so tied up in the economy and like the value of our bodies is so, and of our identities is so tied up in the economy and economic needs of the country. And that really resonated with me as a Chinese American person, because when you think of the history of Chinese American people since like the 1800s and um, how they were needed and discarded so so often, depending on whether they needed to build a railroad or whether they needed to fill all these um, like low level positions in the community um, and whether they needed labor and stuff like that. It just, it made me really think, uh, I mean, of course there's such an intersection between, between race and economics. And so I would love if you had any thoughts to share about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, as I, as I said in the, the event the other night, I, I have an ecumenical conception of inequality. And what I mean by that is, I think there are a whole bunch of different criteria that are morally significant when we are sort of doing interpersonal or intergroup comparisons. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, to only focus on a very small number of them, right? To focus on only economics or to focus only on, you know, identity. 
And I guess my sense is that we need to be attentive to one, just the sheer variety of different types of inequality that should, should bother us, but also we need to be attentive to the ways in which would be different types of inequality actually interlink. And so, you know, I don't have a strong theory about um, the causal relationship between economic marginalization and racial marginalization. I don't know which is causing which, right? But I think they're probably at this point mutually constitutive, such that it's almost incoherent to try and attack one or try to fix one without also talking about the other, um, right? And so, you know, we should talk about changing our culture. We should talk about the importance of representation. Um, we should talk about recognizing, you know, the extraordinary art and cultural contributions of people who aren't white guys. But we should also, at, at the same time, and as part of that discussion, also talk about restructuring parts of the economy that don't on the face of it look like they're about racial identity or ethnic identity or anything like that because those economic sort of points of marginalization are going to be tied up in it even if it's not obvious does that make sense yeah 100 percent, definitely makes sense um thank you for sharing that yeah the the idea that when you're like, I don't know which causes which, and it's like kind of like the chicken or the egg, and it, it's hard, but you definitely know that they are interconnected, and there's interaction and, and engagement between them. I think that that's, like you said, a very important thing to be aware of. There's a, a wonderful book by a guy named Michael Walzer. Uh, it's called Spheres of Justice, and he, he makes an argument there for what he calls complex equality, and what he means by complex equality is that if you think about the various goods that are necessary to live a good human life or a fulfilling human life, right, there are a whole bunch of them and they're totally heterogeneous, right? And one of the concerns he has with sort of not contemporary American society, but not just contemporary American society, is that we let distributions of one type of good too often determine distributions of another type of good. Right, so one way of reading, for example, debates about socialized medicine is that the distribution of money shouldn't control the distribution of health, right? Um, or you might say, you know, the distribution of money shouldn't determine the distribution of political power, right? And so untangling this knot of how one type of inequality feeds into another I think in a very like, I don't know if Walzerian is a word, but in a very Walzerian way, um, I think will move us towards a more just system, even if in various spheres there are still sort of now, um, you know, autonomous inequalities that need to be fixed. For sure. Thank you for that answer. I think it shows the, that supporting platforms that well, can't speak, platforms that support this um, growth, whether it's economically or community-centered for um, BIPOC communities, will help to do that untangling in and of itself, because you'll see growth there. You'll see people being able to um, 
start the conversations that will further untangle the 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 bias and the the rules and laws that we've placed around each other to kind of keep us stagnant um so i think i i love that uh that complex in a complex equality i i will look more into that so thank you you actually ended up answering one of the questions that we ask our guests at the end of each and every um, Politox episode, but I can wait for that. Mara, were there any other questions or things that you wanted to touch on before we? Yes, I just briefly, um, brief, brief answers are totally okay for this question. Um, but I was wondering since um, obviously we're having this conversation in the context of this is a university podcast. Uh, we all interact with university students and um, are at a higher education institution. So just broadly, um, is there a role that higher education institutions can, can play in this? You know, we talk a lot about how colleges and universities, they are hubs and spaces for you know, innovation and progression of uh, civil rights, political rights, social rights. And so what is kind of the job of higher ed institutions to either build leaders that can tackle these problems of inequality or maybe even curriculum that can dismantle myths about how we have inequality? Um, yeah, really, really big question um, that I don't think I can uh, answer completely, completely, but let me give just sort of a couple of disconnected thoughts. Um, I think one of the ways of tackling the problem is this recognition that Universities have in some sense become, or attending university has in some sense become a prerequisite to entrance or persistence in the middle class. And because of that, just in terms of the structure of university, you know, how we think about how we finance students and student education, uh, who we welcome into the classroom, I think because colleges are so important in determining economic outcomes, we just on a structural level need to be better about making them places where everyone feels welcome. Um, you know, and I think, I think Linfield's done a, a pretty good job at that, but I think there's always room for improvement, right? Until, until there are no inequ inequities or inequalities of representation, we're not doing good enough. Um, another thought that I have that, that I think is maybe pushes in a different direction is I wonder if universities being prerequisites for entrance into the middle class is actually a good thing. Um, right, we, we are, you know, as, as you or, or your listeners are probably painfully aware, we're putting people in debt to get this thing, you know, this degree that in some sense is necessary or in almost all circumstances is necessary to enter the middle class. And I'm not sure that that system where university is necessary for everybody to get, get by economically, I'm not sure that that's sustainable or morally defensible. Uh, but in terms of what universities can actually do, right, in terms of not the structural stuff, but in terms of what we can actually do, I think one of the ways I've been thinking about this a lot this term, uh, teaching a class great political thinkers, right, where we kind of read the canon. And one of the problems with the canon is that who is considered to be important in any given era itself will reflect the prejudices and, and inequalities of that era, right? So why are there so many, you know, 
white men in the canon? Well, because there was extraordinary racism and sexism that kept other people out. And so I've been thinking about how to approach this. Um, you know, one answer with which I have you know, significant sympathy is to transform the canon, right? Uh, we should just bring other voices in. But I think there's also another answer that can work alongside that, which is we can use the canon as a jumping off point for thinking about the inequalities that have persisted from, you know, we just finished talking about Rousseau in that class. So they've persisted from, you know, the 18th century to now, you know, what are the ways in which inequality is visible there and how can understanding that inequality help us understand inequality in our own day. And so maybe, you know, more kind of critical engagement, you know, in my own little corner, a more critical engagement with the history of ideas. Um, so not just to sort of, then he says this, then he says this, then he says this, but you know, using it as a springing off point for reflections both on the conditions that you know, the great political thinkers were facing, but also that, that we're now facing. Thank you for that insightful answer to my very big question that I was like, just a brief answer. And then I was like, well, here, solve everything that higher, higher education is facing. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that answer. And I think those are, are great things that our listeners um, can, can ponder and be thoughtful about, uh, as many of them are currently um, college students. Yes, thank you. It was so good to have you on. I, I love this episode. Um, so as I was getting to before that, that question, um, which <laughs> at the end of each and every episode, as I was talking, we take the time to ask the guests we have on if they could share a recommendation of something they either listened to, read, or watched recently. And we were wondering if you had any other really good recommendations that you could give us and our listeners. I, yeah, so, you know, let me give, let me give you two answers, one of which is, um, is the sort of boring philosopher thinking you'd expect me to say, and one of which is maybe less boring. Um, I have just been uh, rereading a book by Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, um, called Sources of the Self. Uh, it was published in, I think, 1989. And it's this kind of history or genealogy of our modern conception of selfhood and personal identity. And I've been reading it, you know, in part just because he's a beautiful writer. Um, and I'll revisit his writing whenever I get a chance, but I've also been rereading it as an occasion to think about the ways in which my conceptions of myself and of my personal identity might themselves um, sort of be marshaled or reformed in ways that'll bring about a better world, right? And so the ways in which, you know, for example, the individualism that, you know, I think I have as a background assumption, where that individualism came from, and also what alternatives there are to it. Um, you know, and Taylor is such a, just beautiful and sympathetic writer. I would recommend the book to anybody. It's, it's, it's an undertaking. I think it's five or 600 pages at least, but it's, it's beautiful. Uh, the other um, maybe, more, maybe more interesting is, uh, I think she's British, though she may not live in, in America. I've been listening to just a ton of a, a singer called Charlie XCX. 
Um, you know, she had like a, an album she recorded in quarantine, I think maybe like How I'm Feeling Now or something. Um, that, may, that may not be the right title, but there's a song on there called Anthems. Um, and it to me was the song of quarantine. And I, it's, I can't listen to it. Like if I'm like driving to work, I can't listen to it because it makes me cry. But it is so extraordinary. And you know, she does this thing that I think a lot of people, not so much in my generation, but maybe in yours, are capable of doing, which is she fully embraces the, the sort of pop form while simultaneously kind of commenting on it. Um, and I, I haven't been as excited about pop music in years as I am about her. That is brilliant. Thank you so much for those recommendations. And I love the, the difference, but also the way that you pull those all together. That is the type of professor you are. I loved having you on. I, I hope we get to see more of you in the department and, um, and that you're enjoying the semester. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both so much. This has been, you know, as with the event the other night, this has been just an absolute pleasure. And I really appreciate what, what you're doing and being sort of generous enough to, to spend your time with me for a while. I loved it. Thank you. Yes, it was amazing. I'm definitely going to go listen to that album, like, right after this. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is the, the wrap-up of our this episode. And, uh, Sincere, would you like to take us out? Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in to Politox. We will see you again next week. <laughs>